Good evening, everyone. Um, whoa, what a huge mob we have here tonight. Um, if, yeah, if you're here for the first time, you're probably one of many, so feel no shame. Um, we are, um, we're glad to have you here. Um, my name is um, Scotty. Um, if you're here long enough, you can call me the Reverend Scotty Reed. Um, and um, would you believe it, eh? They're like handing those things out in cereal boxes now. Um, but, um, um, hey, um, before we begin, um, just wanted to share a little bit. We've got this thing coming up around Blueprint. We have a number of people who live in these um, missional communities, houses together, about 18 of us, uh, who do rhythms of prayer, mission and hospitality um, in the central city. Now, um, what we have thought about recently is that our living and community uh, doesn't work for everybody. For some people, it may be to do with stage of life, it may be to do with health reasons, it may just be that you don't want to. Um, and, um, and so what we've been looking at is in the history of, um, of monastic communities, communities with monks and nuns, they used to have these different shapes uh, where they had first order, and the first order were people who lived um, with the monks in the community, did their daily offices, did their daily prayers, had their vows of silence, lived on site. But then they were also what they had was this thing called a second order, who were people who wanted to be a part of the order of life, um, of the same rhythms of prayer, of mission, of hospitality, but couldn't live in. And so what we're doing at the moment is we're just starting off a second order in a couple of weeks' time, um, which is a crew of people um, not living in our houses who are going to um, basically get on those same rhythms. And uh, it will basically be three or four times a week, you joining us for prayer in the evenings down at St. Peter's. Um, there will be involvement in uh, either the free store or handball or a different, different missional outworking in our community. Um, and uh, then there will be like a little kind of a, an hour-long life group in the week where we debrief some of those experiences. Um, we're doing basically a pilot season of that. We said we're going to do it for three months and see how it goes. Thought we might have four or five people. There's like 12 of us so far, which is Woo! really exciting. Yes! So um, if you want to be a part of that and you haven't told me yet, we'd love you to come and have a chat to me later because it's really special. And um, I think sometimes we neglect the fact that, like, uh, I mean, our generation is notoriously bad at prayer, right? Like, we say we're going to do it and we don't. Um, and we say we're going to read the Bible and we often don't. Um, but if you've never had anyone show you how, then it's hard to do anything. And when we come together as a community and we say we're going to have rhythms together of when we read scripture, when we pray, when we learn how to be there for the last, the lost, and the least in our city, then we actually learn together and suddenly it becomes a lot easier. Um, and so if you're like, man, like I say I want to pray, but I don't, just come have a chat to me and let's see if we can get a crew of us together. And it's this beautiful thing where you kind of, um, as you begin to pray with a crew of people, with a community around you each day, you kind of fall into the slipstream of those people. And it just starts to feel a little bit easier. And some days it's still boring, but you turn up for all your friends, um, and that works too. Um, so, come and have a chat to me about second order. I want to point out second order comes from the monastic form. Someone the other day called it second tier. Um, <laughs> it's not second tier, it's not second class, it's not the B team. Um, it <laughs> comes from theology, all right? Um, cool. Alright, so I'm um, going to share with you today, and to do that we are going to read scripture, and I'm going to hand that scripture to, come on, um, 
I'm going to hand that scripture to someone with a loud voice, a loud, clear voice. Um, Ty, I'm going to hand this to you. Okay. Can you jump up? Yeah. All right, so Ty's going to read this. I'm going to give you the mic too. And, um, oh, you can use this one. It's okay. I'm sending you back. Okay. So what you may want to do is close your eyes or, or do whatever you need to do to, to enter into this scripture. Um, Healing in the pool. John 5, 5-9. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. One who had been there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in the condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me to the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was the Sabbath. Awesome, give it up for Ty. So, a couple of observations to start with this passage. We hear about this, this place, this pool of Bethesda, which has kind of become a dumping ground for the unclean and the unwanted of society. That there's basically become a collection of people who have gone, we're going to hang out here, and we know right away that this is still the case in society, right? That there are places where we put the, the unwanted or the unclean people. You know, when we first moved into town and started our community, some of us used to go walking around the city and we would have a couple of thermoses, one filled with hot chocolate, one filled with tea. And what would you find but these places where the homeless, where the unwanted, where the socially isolated congregated? You found pools of Bethesda around the city. And you find pools of Bethesda still today. You find them um, in our retirement villages where we put away the people who are... Um, maybe not productive enough for us anymore. You find the pools of Bethesda sometimes in council housing, where we place people who, to be honest, we are such a progress and such an efficiency-minded society that when someone ceases to be productive for our aims, we move them out. So we know this picture. We know what it is to arrive at a place where the unwanted have congregated. The other thing we see in here is that the man, uh, our man who receives healing here is he's nameless. And that tells you something often in the scriptures when you come across a nameless person. Last weekend, Elliot brought that quote from Gustavo Gutierrez. He said, you say you love the poor, well tell me, what are their names? That often those who are marginalised, those who are on the edges, are the nameless people in society. And so we come to a man who is congregated at the pool of Bethesda in this unwanted place, and he has no name and nobody much cares for him. But here's where the story gets really, really interesting is that in the Hebrew, hezda means shame and disgrace. So the second part of that, hezda means shame and disgrace. Bethesda means grace or house of grace. So there's this clue to us at the, at the beginning of the story with the location before we know anything about it, that this is a story where ungrace is going to be moved into grace, where shame is going to move into shamelessness, where hezda is going to become Bethesda. And so that is the, the little clue we're given at the, at the beginning. So we get this first sentence. Um, 
giving us this clue. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate Pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralysed. So we have this place called a house of grace, but it is surrounded and it is full of the disgraced. So this is going to be a story about redemption right from the start. It's about Jesus bringing grace out of ungrace, shamelessness out of shame, and Bethesda out of Hesda. But there are this, this number of barriers that Jesus and, and our nameless man have to get beyond to begin this. And the first of those, it's really convenient in the scriptures because all revelation from scripture comes in three points. Um, so I'm going to offer you three points here. And so the first of these barriers is the barrier of bad belief. Verse 7, Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. So this man, he believes in this really strange superstition, right? That what we have is we have this pool, and every now and then the pool ripples a little bit. And when the pool ripples a little bit, it's because there's an angel around. And at that moment, there is a spiritual lolly scramble. And whoever of us can first reach the waters will no longer be disgraced and will no longer be disabled. It's a bizarre superstition, right? Absolutely bizarre superstition. You know, I remember being in Jerusalem a few years ago. They have a lot of bizarre superstitions in Jerusalem. They have this um, place called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre where they believe that the death burial and resurrection of Christ all happened within this one church that's about 15 metres wide. Ridiculous. But, but near the door they have a plinth, they have a big piece of slate where they believe the body of Jesus was laid. And as you come in there are all these people with handkerchiefs crawling around the stone wiping their handkerchiefs all over this block hoping that they'll pick up some good spiritual juju off it. You know, but there is like, there is not that healing's not at home. I had to come to Jerusalem and I had to rub my snotty rags on the stone and then maybe I will be healed. It's ridiculous, you know, and it's, it's easy to see it in that, but actually we believe this in a whole bunch of different ways. I can remember when I was about um, 15 or 16 trying to follow Jesus, I came to faith at 13 or 14, and my, I would always work myself into these holes of feeling like I'd kind of messed up with God. And when I messed up with God, I knew what I needed to be right with God again. I just needed another conference. I just needed to get to a church conference. If I could get to a church conference, everything would be okay, you know? And so I looked forward, I remember this one year looking forward to this church conference. I'm like, if I can just get there, Jesus will set me free. I will be healed. And we arrived there on the first night and we'd been there for a couple of hours and then it rained. And it rained, and it rained, and it rained, and this whole campsite flooded. And I was like, no, I'm going to have to wait a whole other year to be right with God. <laughs> but we do, we do believe these kinds of things, don't we? We do, we believe these bad beliefs. See, Luke is careful in Acts to set this belief straight. This idea that God lives in these places, in some places and not in others. Acts seven forty eight fifty. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all things? Acts 17. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath 
and everything else. See, this guy thought that the healing was somewhere else, that he had to get to the water at the right moment. But God has said that his spirit no longer lives in temples or houses made of stone, but lives in the human heart. And we do fall into this. Some of you came here tonight to this church service, hopeful that this would put you back on track with Jesus. Now, the problem wasn't with Jesus. Jesus was right present with you. You just believed you needed to be here to meet him. He was already there. You don't need the temple anymore. Now, you do need community, but you don't need the temple. See, Jesus' constant correction to our... um, Yeah, so this man, he thinks he needs to get to the water, and Jesus is saying, the healing you want isn't somewhere over there. It's right here. It's with me. Jesus says to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. See, so often we think that we need Jesus to be the vehicle that carries us to healing. That Jesus is the one who will take us to the thing we need. We saw this with the bread and the fish, with the feeding of the 5,000, that they came to him because they believed he was the one that could give them more bread. And what does he say to them? No, 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 I'm not here to provide you with bread. I am the bread. I am not the vehicle you need to get to the water. I'm not the one who's going to pick you up, nameless man, and drop you in the water. I am the water. John 4. I am not the provider of your bread. I am the bread. John 6. I'm not the ideology to another destination. I am the way itself. I'm not the question with another answer. I'm the answer. I'm the giver and the gift. Jesus wants to lead us from disgrace to grace, from shame to shamelessness, from Hester to Bethesda. He is stirring the waters. He is the way. He is the healing. And for some of us, you know, we've spent our lives and we've spent this last week wanting Jesus to carry us to the place of healing. And he's saying, right here, I'm with you. I'm within you. So the barrier of bad belief. But secondly, we have in this the barrier of societal expectations. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. And the day on which this place took place was the Sabbath. That little line at the end there is crucial. The day on which this took place was the Sabbath. See, rabbis at the time, these, these teachers, they were students of the Torah and of the prophets. The Torah, the first five books of, of the Old Testament and, and, and the, um, yeah, the, the prophets. And, uh, and so they interpreted what it meant to, to follow God. But they also had this other book to help them out, which was called the Talmud. And the Talmud was about taking everything that was in the Old Testament and making it even more specific about how to be holy. And so what they would do in the Talmud is it would say, on the Sabbath, you can walk 100 steps, but if you walk 101st, you are in sin and you need to repent. And then they would say, you can make bread, but if you add yeast to it and it begins to rise, well, that is work, and so you're in sin. There's even a bit in the Talmud that says, if you pee on the ground... And it creates mud, and that mud is used to make bricks. You worked on the Sabbath, and you're in sin. (laughs) And so these rabbis had these insane rules and regulations that came from their understanding of the Torah and the Talmud. And so we have in the verses that follow our man receiving his healing, the Jewish leaders come up to him. You didn't hear it before. It says, and so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forgives you to carry your mat. I'm sorry? This man has been a paralytic for 38 years. 
38 years, our man was man. They have no doubt walked through this place many times. They have seen our man over and over and over again. They know who he is. He is walking and they say, why are you carrying your shakti mat? (laughs) It's insanity. Isn't it insanity? That a miracle has occurred here and their concern is whether he's right by the regulations. And you know why this is? Is it because their society was not set up for movements from Kesta to Bethesda. Their society was not set up for movements from shame to shamelessness. It was not set up for movements from ungrace to graciousness. They couldn't understand it when they saw it. And I think this is like, it's so the same thing we have in our culture today. Many of you will know Alicia, who's um, currently in a, a rehabilitation up the coast. And Alicia has um, had one of the hardest lives of anyone I've ever met been through some horrific things in her life. And, and she moved into our house with us a few years ago and over the years learned to receive love from people and to understand that she was worthy of love. But it was really confusing for Alicia because for her whole life, she had been told by mental health workers and by care workers, you can only ever expect to live alone. And you can only ever expect to manage the pain. This is a lifelong love. You'll be isolated, but we'll teach you the tools for pain management. You see, our society does not have a lens for Hester to Bethesda. It does not have a lens from shame to shamelessness. It doesn't have a lens from ungrace to graciousness. It only teaches us pain management, but the promise of Christ is full restoration, is healing, is freedom. And so often we settle for pain management, and rather than focusing on the miracle that, someone has done, uh, that God has done in someone's lives, instead we're saying, why are you carrying your yoga mat? What are we doing? What is that? And so here's what's crucial for us. Is that as Christians, we do not belong to that society that doesn't have a narrative for this. We belong to another society called the kingdom of God. And it does have a story of Hester to Bethesda. It does have a story of shame to shamelessness. It does have a story of ungrace to graciousness. So we belong to Philippians 3:18 to 21. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach and their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Let me paraphrase that into the, um, the SR version. I've said this so many times. Many people don't get that there's another way. They can't imagine a world where there is greater bread than you can eat and a society that believes we can move on from shame. They are citizens of the society of earth, but we are citizens of the kingdom of God, where ungrace becomes grace and shame becomes shamelessness. We follow Jesus, the one who saves us, who is powerful and transforms the most broken things to become the most glorious things you've ever seen. We follow a different narrative, people. Jesus wants to lead us out from Hester to Bethesda. Our first barrier, bad belief, through which Christ offers himself as the water, the bread, and the way. Not a vehicle to another destination, but all of it. 
The second is our societal expectations through which Christ offers us a new society to belong to. And the third we see in this passage is the barrier of misplaced identity. So we hear in verses 3 to 5, Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralysed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. So this is a man who has had a disability for 38 years. 38 years. After 38 years, you probably don't know another reality anymore. We see this throughout the scriptures, these stories of people who have been sick for a long, long time. Matthew 9 tells the story of a woman who has been bleeding for 12 years. Could you believe in healing when that had been going on for 12 years? John 9 tells the story of a man born blind and for shown 25, 30 years of no sight. You don't even know how to see. These are people for whom their sickness has become a part of who they very are, of their very identity. It is how they function in the world. It is what they do with their time. And there's something about long-term sickness that doesn't just break your body, but it breaks down your heart and it breaks down your spirit over time too. It breaks down your agency or break down your self-confidence. And this exterior and physical sickness so often can end up kind of taking over our hearts at the same time. Um, a few, few years ago, um, would have been about six or seven years ago, uh, while I was doing youth and community work, I fell into this um, really low place of depression and anxiety for about three or four years. And... Um, it does, after a while, become dangerous to hope. There's Proverbs 13 that says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. And you want to hope. You want to hope for change. You want to know something other than what you feel. But the idea of reaching out again, and maybe being left wanting, just becomes a little bit too much. Now, that's just a little of my experience. I can't imagine what it's like for a man 38 years of disability. How much would it cost him to hope that there could be something else? Jesus asks a dangerous question to our man. He says, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? And our man, our nameless man, he can't even answer the question. He goes to all the barriers for him getting to that pool. He says, I have no one to help me get into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Translation, it's impossible. I've been here, and I've always been here, and I never get to the pool, and I never will. This is who I am, this is who I have always been, and it's who I will always be. Jesus responds with um, a real dick move, I reckon. <laughs> Just get up. <laughs> Imagine that. You imagine in a society like ours where so many of us have been defined by our dysfunctions? Jesus just saying, just get up. Just feel happy. Just eat the FODMAP set in. So offensive to our current cultural moment where so many of us have hinged our identity on our wounds rather than what Christ has healed in us or the healing that he offers to us. 
It's a safer. It means we never have to hope again. It means the hope deferred cannot make the heart sick. But the second part of that proverb, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. A longing fulfilled is a tree of life. You see, when Jesus heals, it's never just a spiritual healing. And it's never just a physical healing. I think I read this every single sermon. But Luke 4.18, Jesus' declaration of what his ministry would be. Wealth redistribution for the poor, early parole for the imprisoned, sight for the blind, and an end to oppression. That's his promise for the world. That's the narrative. That is the shame to shamelessness. That is the ungrace to graciousness. That is the Hester to Bethesda. That's the narrative we believe in. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Yes, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. And so maybe it's worth hoping. Maybe it's worth hoping because maybe my heart will be fulfilled and it will be a tree of life, not just for me, but for everybody. The bleeding woman had to have the courage to reach for the hem of his garment. The centurion had to humble himself under authority for the servant to be healed. And the man of Bethesda had to stand to his feet. And I'm like so deeply encouraged by the people in this community whom I know who have come again and again and hoped on Jesus and not yet seen what you hoped would happen. Man, like, Paul, you so inspire me that you've shared your story with us so many times and you find yourself in such pain and again and again and again you go, you know what, the last 50 times, maybe it didn't happen, but 51 Maybe hope fulfilled will be a tree of life. Maybe. I bless you in that. It's so beautiful. It's dangerous to hope, but we are a hopeful people. We believe in the story of the place of disgrace becoming the place of grace and God's movement. Jesus wants to lead us from shame to shamelessness, from here to Bethesda. Our barriers to this are bad belief through which Christ offers himself the water, the bread, and the way. There are societal expectations through which Christ offers us a new society, a new kingdom to belong to. There are misplaced identity through which Christ offers us healing and a new identity as God's children. Let's just sit in silence for a minute and then I'll offer you some invitations. You can close your eyes if you want.